We're in Mark chapter 14 today, and we're stepping in once again to this account of Jesus. And it's been so good for us, hasn't it, to look through this, this book of Mark as we've been walking through this for over six months now, and just walking along with Jesus. And as I've been thinking about this, the song that we just prayed to God, show us Christ, in many ways, this this journey that we've been on through Mark has done that for us as a church in, in a powerful and amazing way, and we've come to know Christ better as a whole. And today we're going to have a chance to look into his life as he prepares to place it on the cross for our sin. We've looked at the last few weeks, and we've been really close to this last week of Christ, but today we're going to see where this really becomes a reality and in it, we're going to see three different responses, three responses. And I would suggest to you that within these three responses are really the responses of every person. There's three different responses that each one of us can have as we look at this person of Jesus Christ. And truthfully, I'm not sure there's any person more controversial, more significant than the person of Jesus Christ. When you stop and think about it, every person you come up to and you mention the name of Jesus, for the most part, almost everybody has an opinion as it relates to Jesus. And, and uh, it's so true that even our time is divided according to the life of Christ. And so as we look at this, every single person, it seems, has a response to that, at least in our country. I understand and know there's some parts of the world where you say the name of Jesus and they'll look at you and maybe not know what that means. But for us here, to stop and think about that. So the text we're looking at is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why those waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can, you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. God, as we look in your word, we pray that you would open it for us and illuminate it for us. Father, I pray that you take the clutter and the distractions from my mind, from our minds, so that we could hear your spirit speak. You say, Lord, that your word is living and active, performing the surgery it needs to in our lives. May that be the case this morning for your glory, I pray. Amen. Amen. 
So three responses to Jesus, and the first response we see is right in these first two verses where it's a scheming heart of destruction, a scheming heart of destruction. And, and you know, your response to Jesus really does reveal your heart. And, and as we look at these three different responses, we're going to look how it reveals the heart of the person who has the response. And so in the very beginning here are the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law who are who are looking to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him, it says. And it's significant that this is happening during the Passover. And the Passover, you, you understand, and we've talked about this a little bit, but it's important for us to understand the Passover as we move into this. Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem for several chapters in the book of Mark. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he's making his way to Jerusalem to be part of the Passover. And the Passover is one of the most significant festivals for the Jewish people still today. But at this time of Christ, it would have been a significant and a major event. The Passover, you understand, was established by God when, when Moses came and freed the slaves from Egypt. And it was an awesome and incredible thing. For 400 years, they'd been held in bondage and they had prayed, God, save us. And God sent Moses and, and through all the plagues and finally through the death of the firstborn, the Passover lamb was slain and the blood from that lamb was placed on the doorposts and the angel of death would pass over that house. And so every year they observed the Passover in remembrance of this and as they came to this time when Christ was alive, there's population of Jerusalem, probably about 60, 70, 80,000 people, maybe 100,000. We don't know for sure, but somewhere in that neighborhood. And during Passover, anybody who lived, any man who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem needed to travel there. Not only that, but many people from around the country would travel and make their way to Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people as many as 500,000 people would make their way to Jerusalem. Those who were preparing for Passover would send people out into the, into the, the areas surrounding Jerusalem prior to. So for a month prior to, roads were being repaired. Tombs were being whitewashed. Fields were looked over because if accidentally a body had been, or of an animal or something had been plowed up and the bones were there, they, they would be cleaning that all up so that people who traveled would not become ceremonially unclean to take part in the Passover. You can imagine roads that were intended for a few people being filled with hundreds of thousands of people. Because what would happen is people would get together in groups, sometimes as many as 100 people would get together and travel to Jerusalem. And so some of the smaller towns, you know, you'd get all these people passing through and there'd be such bad traffic jams that some of the people wouldn't even make it to Jerusalem. Could you imagine that? You ever been in a traffic jam, right? The conversations in the car are always really good then, aren't they? So you could imagine coming into a village with a little trail that goes through it, and you've got all these thousands of people making their way to Jerusalem. And it's all because they're looking to observe the feast and the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover, a significant time for the Jewish people. 
Well, time would say, remember the faithfulness of God, but also as they look forward. Because they understood and knew that God had promised that the Messiah would come. And so they looked forward as well to the coming Savior. And so as they came to the Passover, you remember that they're, they're under Roman reign. The Romans have come and taken them over, and so they're crying out to be free from this Roman government that is, is oppressing them. Remember when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, and the crowd cried out? What did they cry? Hosanna, which means save us, God save so much like the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, the Israelites, the Jewish people of this day, were crying out, God save us. This is the setting. This is the setting that we're stepping into as we come to this part of the scriptures. And it says here that the, the chief priests and teachers of the law were very busy during this time. So you can imagine the chief priests and teachers of the law as they've got hundreds of thousands of people coming in. Okay, so like normally we have this many people here. Imagine we had like eight times this many people in the room. And I knew that that many people were coming. What do you think I'd be doing? Getting ready, right? I mean, there's all these logistics and all these things that we need to do to prepare. And, and imagine the prayer that would be going on so that as people are coming, wanting to have an encounter with God, that these things would happen. And so the chief priest and the, the teachers of the law, rather, it seems, than being focused on that, Scripture tells us they were scheming of a way to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So in some way, rather than than being focused on the Passover and all that that, and understand and know what we're going to see as we look through these final chapters of, of Mark. Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So in a most ironic turn, the chief priests and elders are trying to find a way to secretly arrest Jesus, who is the Passover lamb, and kill him, which must happen. But they thought it would be best if it didn't happen during the festival, because the people may riot. You see, one of the other things that was very significant during the Passover festival, King Herod would come into town and because there was all this volatility. It was just waiting under the surface where people would be wanting to, to have something more happening, to want to have this freedom. And the religious rulers were very concerned in keeping whatever peace they had already established under this reign of Rome. So they decided to put off their scheme to destroy Jesus because they didn't want the people to riot. Isn't it interesting that the largest threat to the life of Jesus comes from within, not from without? So what do you notice about the hearts of people who want to destroy Jesus? Have you met anybody like that? Have you met anybody who wants to destroy Jesus, his reputation, his name, his person? 
And what do you notice about their hearts? Many times have you noticed that their hearts are hearts that just simply don't know who Jesus is? And that's what it was with these religious rulers. They, they had so designed who they needed Messiah to be that when Messiah came, they didn't recognize him. And sometimes people who want to destroy Jesus want to destroy Jesus because they don't recognize who he is. The second heart we see in our account and, and the second response is a response of devotion that comes from a beautiful heart. Devotion that comes from a beautiful heart. And that's in this unnamed woman in the Gospel of Mark. And as we've looked at Mark, we, we understand and know it was probably written sometime in the 60s, and it was written to a Roman audience. And so some of, the, some of the way that Mark gives his account is a little bit different than the accounts in the other Gospels because every Gospel was writer was writing to a certain audience at a certain time. Matthew, who has an account of this as well, was writing to a Jewish audience and John was writing to a broad audience, and John wrote about 25 years later. And in the account in John, we see that this unnamed woman is actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary, who had become very special to Jesus. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table of the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So while the, while the religious leaders are scheming to kill him, Jesus is reclining at a dinner at the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon the leper, you see, isn't actually a leper. Because if he was a leper, no one would be in his home because that would make them unclean. So... Simon was a man who had leprosy, who apparently had been healed. So he was identified by that which he had been healed from. I wonder if you found that to be true in your life. Are you identified by that which Jesus has healed you from? As you think about that and you look at that, there was this dinner, and so as Jesus was reclining, it was probably a formal dinner, something that was, was very special and very encouraging for them. And, and he's there, and all of a sudden, he's there with his disciples and others. John tells us that Lazarus was there, Martha, Mary. <clears throat> and as he's there, Mary comes and takes this alabaster jar of perfume and breaks it and pours it over his head. We'll find out a little later that it's worth over a year's wages. Think if you have something that's worth a year's wages. Do you have anything that you have that's worth what you make in one year? I thought about that. And, you know, toaster, you know. You know, Estee Lauder, no. But you think of a perfume, and, and you think of what's the most expensive perfume you know to consider that, that this bottle of perfume was worth a year's wages. Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. And Mary brings this bottle, this alabaster jar, and the alabaster lets you know how precious the, the, the perfume is that's inside, and rather than opening it, she breaks it. This jar will never be used again. It's serving one purpose. 
And that purpose is to find this, this entire contents emptied onto Jesus. Mark tells us that it's poured on, on the head of Jesus. John will say that it's poured on his feet as well. And of course, Jesus says that she has poured this on my body. So this jar has been broken and opened and poured out on Jesus. I don't know what nard smells like. I was going to buy a bottle, but Karen said, it's a little too much money, you don't know, $40,000 or whatever. It's got a musky aroma is what, is what I'm told. And that, that aroma must have filled the room. And as it filled the room, and people observed this woman, Mary, coming and, and devoting herself and devoting this most precious gift that she had to Jesus, they began to speak to her in a very encouraging way. Do you see it there in the text? Why this waste of perfume? See, that sarcasm. They weren't encouraging, were they? Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you've, you've moved toward the Lord in an act of devotion, and it was misunderstood by others? That's not the way that you should be worshiping. We don't raise our hands when we sing. We do raise our hands when we sing. We do clap. We don't clap. All these different ways that we look at and how do we worship and how do we decide how others should worship. John tells us in, in his account that this person who, who started the conversation of how, how terrible of a waste this was was Judas. He started the conversation, and, and apparently others joined in. You know, a lot of times that happens. If I have something to say and I say it, pretty soon other people are like, yeah, I never thought of it, but you're right. Yeah, that was a waste. Yeah, that could have been sold. Yeah, that, that could have been sold. And you know what? Yeah. What's that about? You know, you could have sold that bottle of perfume, and you could have bought, like, Gazillion meals for the people in Haiti. Man, what a waste. <sighs> How quick am I to tell other people what they should be doing with what they're given? Okay, I have a great idea for what you should do with your money, Dave. Let me tell you what it is, okay? But nobody else brought a bottle of perfume to the party, did they? She was the only one. But immediately, everybody had a better idea of how she could spend those resources. And she had clearly wasted it. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. There's great significance in that, what Jesus says. As he says, the poor you will always have with you. He's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11. There will always be poor people in the land. But the context of that, Deuteronomy 15, however, there need be no poor people among you, Deuteronomy 15, 4. 
There need be no poor people among you, for the land the Lord is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. There need be no poor people among you. See, as Jesus quotes this, you'll always have the poor among you. He also knows and understands that there's no need for that. God has provided enough. God is the provider of all, and he's provided enough that no one should be poor. And if every person was living according to, to God's design for their life, there would be no poor people. Amen to that. See, there's no need for there to be poor people. The reason there's poor people is because everybody's thinking somebody else should break the bottle of alabaster perfume and sell it and give it away. But we're holding on too tightly to the stuff we're given. And so Jesus, even as he says, the poor you will always have with you, he knows that. He knows in the fallen world, not everybody's going to live for him, so we're going to have poor with us. And you can give to them any time you want. At any time, Mary could take another bottle of perfume and sell it and give it to the poor. At any time. There will always be an opportunity to do that, but there was only one opportunity for her to take this bottle, break it, and pour it on Jesus' head. There was no other purpose for this bottle of alabaster perfume than to be used for the purpose that Mary used it. It was there to anoint Jesus. We don't know what motivated her, we do know that she sat at the feet of Jesus. She sat at the feet of Jesus, and, and Jesus said that she chose what was best. What was best was for her to sit at the, his feet and listen and hear and learn and know who Jesus is. Mary was one who knew Jesus very well by all accounts in Scripture. She traveled with him in some ways. And, and so as she traveled, did she hear the three different times that Jesus said that he was going into Jerusalem where he would be killed, where he would be handed over to the chief priest, where they would take his life and he would rise again? Did she hear him say those things and did she believe it? No other act of love towards Jesus is talked about in the Passion Week before his death other than this. The only one who's responding to, to Jesus' words seems to be Mary. The rest of them, well, the disciples, when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to die, they say, give us what we ask. Remember, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. They didn't listen. They didn't hear the heart of Jesus. Mary, it seems, heard the heart of Jesus. And it turned out in this most loving expression, she did what she could, Jesus said. In a way, she did what she could, reminds me of the, of the widow who gave the coin. She gave all that she had, and Mary gave all that she had. The most expensive item she owned, more than likely, she gave to the Lord. She poured out perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. And it was determined to be a waste. Next week, we'll be looking at the fact that, that she poured out perfume on the body that would pour out his blood to save our lives. 
And many people in the same way that view the perfume being poured out as a waste, view the pouring out of the blood of Christ as a waste. To prepare my body for burial. My sense is that nard is, a, is an aroma that lingers. And I've often thought to myself as I've read this passage, how long did that aroma linger on the body of Christ, in his hair, you know, and, and in his body? And as two days later, he'll be before the, before the chief priests in trial. Was there still a lingering of the aroma? as he was beaten, as he was bruised, as his body was hung on the cross, as it was hurriedly taken down and put into a tomb. We don't know, but we do know what Jesus says in verse 9. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and died and hung on a cross, poured out his blood for us. She poured oil on his head, anointing him, recognizing that he was king, recognizing that that he was sovereign, that he was the Messiah. And Jesus indicates that she's also prepared his body to be buried a heart of devotion, a heart given over fully and completely to God. And so now, her story has become part of his. So that the gospel is not preached without without an understanding of how it had impacted Mary's life and how it had moved in her life. How about How about you? How about your life? How about your experience with Christ? Do you have a heart that that just shows its devotion to the Lord in such a way that that it tells the gospel? That 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 as you as you tell the story of your life. It's impossible to tell the story of your life without interweaving the account of your Savior. Those people who know you, do they know you as one who has walked with Jesus, who has sat at his feet, who has given their lives in devotion to him? Has it changed you the way it changed Mary? One more response. We've looked at the the jealous, scheming heart of destruction. We've looked at a beautiful heart of devotion. How about this betraying heart of deception and disloyalty, could I add to that? Disloyalty. Judas' response to this anointing was to go to the chief priests to betray Jesus. Judas is the most curious of all the disciples, isn't he, in some ways? I think we all try to understand what in the world happened. What, what happened? How, 
how could someone who walked with Jesus for these three years and, and listened and heard, and how could, how could that happen? You'll remember that as he was chosen, he was chosen to be the one that would betray Christ. And quickly we can jump up and say that's not fair. But he was chosen because he was bent that way. He would betray Christ. So if, as John tells us, Judas was the chief one to be complaining that, that the oil had been wasted, the nard had been wasted, it could have been sold and given to me so I could have carefully cared for it and given 30% to the poor and kept 70% for myself, which John tells us he used to like to do with the money that was brought in. And as Jesus looked and said, enough, leave her alone, what she's done is beautiful. Did he feel some sort of shame in the midst of that? We don't know. I'm imagining here, you understand. But what we see in our text is whatever it was about this encounter of him seeing Mary so devoted to Jesus... Whatever he saw in the midst of that caused something to snap in him. And it caused him to go and seek a way to betray Jesus. Generally speaking, when someone offends us, it, it feels like a betrayal. And as soon as we're betrayed, the first thing we do is we go out and look for a way to betray the person who betrayed us, given our own nature. Have you ever done that before? Don't raise your hand. And so as you think about that, did Judas and somehow feel betrayed by Jesus? Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he expected him to be. Jesus was, was caring too much about women, shouldn't care about women like that. Did Jesus, did Jesus spend too much time with James and John? Did, you know, whatever it was, in some way, did Judas feel betrayed and then said, I've had enough, I'm, I'm done. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm, ju I'm just done with this. I'm going to see how much I can make and just get out of it. And so he goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus. They were delighted. Apparently now they were able to do it during the festival because it would happen secretly so they didn't have to be afraid of the riot. And the groundwork is set for what will be happening over the next few days. As the Lamb of God will be slain to take away the sin of the world. He watched for an opportunity to hand Christ over. Stayed close to Jesus and deceived all those around him into believing he was close to Jesus, but he was just looking for the way that he could give Jesus over secretly. Disloyalty. I wonder... What do you notice about the hearts of people who betray Jesus, who have a, a disloyal heart? Do you struggle with this at all? Are you every moment of the day distracted by Jesus? Or are there all sorts of things that happen in your life that distract you from Jesus? See, and, and as we look at this heart of devotion that Mary had, where she gave her all, she did what she could. She took this jar, she broke it. She said, it's all yours, God. It's all yours, Jesus. I recognize the love you have for me. I've sat at your feet. I learned from you. I know you. I understand who you are. And I realize all I have is yours. Verse 
take it, use it. Or are there places in my life where, where I get wrapped up into being disloyal to Jesus? Do I, do I give him, do I carefully open the jar and pour out a little and then take the rest back and put it on the shelf because I might need it later? What does that look like in our lives? Moody is quoted as saying that the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally devoted to him. Ooh, wouldn't it be nice to be that guy? What do we need to put to death in our lives to take hold of what is truly life? Which heart do you have? So what is your heart toward Jesus? Am I totally devoted in my worship of him? How does that become a testimony that's told alongside the gospel? Is there any way that my heart is destructive? Is there, what are the ways that my heart is devoted? And what are the ways that I tend to be disloyal? As we look at Jesus, I would suggest that each person has one of these responses to him. So it's a good way for us to check our hearts. Lord, help us do that. Help us to expose our hearts before you. Like David, let us pray the prayer, search my heart, O God. Test my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search us well, Lord. We long like Mary to be totally devoted to you, to break the jar, to let us know that it's yours to do whatever you would have. I pray this in your name. Lord Jesus, amen. Amen. Would you please stand and hear God's good word for you today? From Ephesians chapter 3. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Amen. Oh, my goodness, thank you for coming. I release you to a week of work witness and worship. Amen.